Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm certainly looking at 17 years of unalloyed failure. <laughs> I've been a professional musician since 1984. It's now Christmas 2003. And yeah, I've made a living. But you know, what is that? That's nearly 19 years. That's 19 years of never getting higher than 76 in the charts or 57 in the charts or whatever. This is Music Made Me Do It, a podcast from Loud and Quiet magazine. I'm Stuart Stubbs, and each week I'll be speaking to people who felt compelled to start their own successful companies within the music industry. I've always wondered how songwriting works, not for the artists who write and release their own music, but for the people who write songs for others. All of those anonymous names that you see on the inside of an album sleeve that you don't recognise at all. I mean, who are these people? And how did they end up writing some of the biggest songs of all time? How did they know how much to sell a song for? And once you've written the best song in the world, how do you get it in front of someone who can make it into a hit? I asked these questions to Egg White, who has written songs that you would definitely know by some of the biggest artists in the world, including Adele, Kylie Minogue and Will Young. Born Francis Anthony White to skilled orchestra players in London, Egg discovered pop music in his early teens and joined a mildly successful cowboy funk band called Yip Yip Coyote at the age of 14. By the time he was 17 and studying his A-levels, he had joined his brother Dave's pop band Brother Beyond playing bass. The group would go on to have mainstream success throughout the late 80s, although not with Egg. He decided to leave at an extremely pivotal time in the career of the band just before they'd released their debut album. You know, I can't tell the story because this is frankly libelous. But effectively, what happened was yeah, we'd made the record and we'd mastered it and put it all together. And I just remember one day getting up. No, what did it was there was a song I wrote, which then went on the Egg and Atlas record called Here Come the Rockets. And we had a Pat Tascam four-track Porter Studio. And I did a lash out demo. Normally, I'd just annotate, you know, not in manuscript, but just in my own particular version of manuscript with letters and time frames on a page what a melody was but for this in this case i just couldn't be bothered to do it and i just sung it into a machine and sung quite nicely and then got nathan to sing it and nathan much as i love him and brilliant songwriter i mean brilliant pop star that he was was a shocking singer and he completely murdered it and none of the it wasn't even that none of the nuance went you know just all the meaning completely wasn't there and i just kind of woke up and thought oh god the whole album is shocking when you look at it in that regard and went to Simon, the manager, and said, Simon, I'm, I'm going. 
Is this before the record comes out? Yeah, before the album comes out. We've had three singles out, all of which have peaked at about 55. Mm. They've all got into the middle of the top 50. And we've got a nice fan base in London, mainly from Cyan Manning School, uh, which was a Catholic school. And we needed cheap people for a video. So we passed <laughs> them all in for the video. And they were brilliant. And about five of them had become a kind of core membership of fans. Right. And they used to drop round at the flat, which me and Dave had in Western Notting Hill. They'd ring on a bell and, you know, we'd go downstairs, see Aisha or Mary. And, you know, you'd chat for about 40 minutes or something. And then you're going, right, now, so girls, I've got to go now. And you'd go back upstairs. Anyway, they were, they were our fan base. So we'd had singles that had all failed. Mm. And then, you know, we, it was plain we weren't quite getting there. And then the album was about to come out and it had been mastered and finished. And I realized that it was shocking or I felt it was shocking. And then Simon said, and I went to see Simon said, I'm going to leave the manager. And he said, if you do leave, you know, we'll, we'll probably be dropped. Not because you're seen as a pivotal member or anything like that, but, but because we've had three singles out, you know, and if a member leaves, that's not good. Yeah, will you stay for a year in silence? Especially seeing as Dave, my brother, because my granddad had died and left us enough money to buy a flat, 40,000 quid. And we bought a flat and Dave had signed over his and presumably mine share of the flat as a collateral on a debt to keep the band afloat. Right. Um, anyway, so it's like, so, you know, if you leave, it's really not good for anyone. Yeah, we'll get dropped. You'll lose the flat. It sucks all around. So I kept quiet for a year. And then I left and I had the pleasure of miming once to the Stock Aitken Waterman hit. Right. Ain't no, was it? Yeah, he ain't no competition. Was it that one? No, the harder I try. Okay. Once. Was that on top of the pop? No, fuck no. <laughs> God, no. No, no, no. Uh, it was at the best disco in the junior best disco in town at Hammersmith Palais. Right. And it was, you know, some nights are just engraved in your memory. This was one of those. It had been a rough night. Um blue mercedes played everyone wanted bros bros was super huge at that point and the band were just braying for bros the whole time janice long was emceeing it and i remember her going i was with pally i want you to say we want the pasadenas and the crowd as one went no let's <laughs> <laughs> just go bros 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 all night and blue mercedes came on and somehow the singer of blue mercedes decided that the only way to get the crowd back on on his side was to take his trousers off. And they were going, bros, 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 and they're throwing things at him oh. and not in a good way. How humiliating, even without his trousers on. Even without his trousers on, they didn't want blue fucking Mercedes. Anyway, we went on and they wanted us enough. And we mimed to one of our songs that had already been a number 57 hit or something like that. Right. Chain Gang Smile. And they all went five out of 10 mad. And then we did the Stock Aitken Waterman song, which was yet to be released. I'd heard it twice. Did yeah, you like the song? Yeah. 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 And the band had heard it. And we do it once in front of a cold crowd that's never heard this band. And they all go eight out of ten mad. Really? Yeah, it's like, fucking hell. So that's what a hit looks like. Mm. And then Simon the next morning said, okay, you can go. I think we're looking good. Now's the time to go. Okay. And he just switched Steve across. Slowly over that year, he'd used Steve the drummer in interviews instead of me. Yeah. And then I could go. Do you think he let you go because he saw what that track yeah. did? He was like, yeah, because he can't do any damage now. Yeah, now's the time to go. Yeah, we're solid. We got we got something that could be a hit. Yeah, yeah, we got a solid fan base. The song could be a hit. Go now. Were you still like, I definitely still want to go? You, oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh please. <laughs> <laughs> you were done. Oh god, yeah. Eck was still only twenty-one when he left Brother Beyond. 
He started a new duo with Alice Temple, a BMX champion who he describes as Notting Hill royalty, but the group was short-lived following the release of their debut album in 1996. Egg refers to the release of the album as a complete non-event. He spent the next six years trying to find another female singer for his songs, failing to do so and finally releasing a solo album himself. Again, the record bombed. Eventually, he would start writing songs for others without the idea of him being in the band himself. Talking to Egg, it becomes clear quite quickly just how much patience is a huge part of becoming a successful songwriter. As far as his story goes, there was still quite a bit more failure to come. But one day, he finally wrote a song that landed and became a huge hit single. At what point are you thinking, this just isn't going to happen? Like, I'm, I'm going to become a plumber. I mean, the fact is, I'm, it's 95. I've been a professional musician now for 11 years. And mm. I might only still be 27 or something. But I've been making money and supporting myself and doing whatever and thinking I'm in with a chance for 11 or 12 years at this point. And had you been making enough yeah. for it to be... Yeah, yeah, fine. 40, 50 grand a year, which back in those days was fantastic. Mm. You know, enough to keep the wolf from the door properly. So no, at no point did I think I'm going to do better becoming a plumber. But I am certainly going, oh, this isn't really going very well, is it? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, I haven't got higher than number 57 or something. You know, there's Brother Beyond things were probably as high as it got. The Yip Yip Coyote teams probably stalled in the 90s. Yeah. The Egg and Alice ones, I think, stalled at about 70. You know, nothing, not even a sniff. At that point, or even now, was that kind of a, a goal to, like, beat the one before? and like The chart, no. the chart position was no. that a goal? No. no. I wanted to make a record that I could play in clean conscience mm. primarily mm-hmm. and then secondarily to not lose money for another corporation. Sure. So I'm on, certainly by this point, I'm still probably on my first publishing deal at Warner Chapel. And then the next thing that happens is I then drop the model of trying to get somebody to join me. Emiliana Torini is the next thing. Yes. So I work with her, I'm guessing at the era, 97, and realise, oh God, she's good. You know, absolutely brilliant, brilliant human, beautiful, fantastic, the greatest singer I've ever, ever come across. This is going to work. And then say, will you join me at Warner's? And she goes, no, I'm going, I've got a deal at One Little Indian, Derek signing me. I go, well, okay, well, then I'll, let's carry on working together and you'll be at One Little Indian and, you know, and we'll just sort of quietly take, I'll quietly take Warner's money and there won't be a record for them. <laughs> so we carried on going and wrote quite a lot of her record um and then roland orzabel got taken on to produce it and this is i've got married by this point it's about 98 by now and the record's you know good it's a good record i've probably co-written half of it or something like that um and roland is doing good productions not betraying it at all I've, i'm still working on tape at this point yeah i've got an atari sequencer but i'm not remotely digital so it's 97 98 roland is using pro tools so i'm dumping all of my tape stuff and he's making it work digitally and using some of it and redoing some and yeah i'm newly married now still scraping a living Mm. and then there was another girl called nicole russo and me and nicole wrote an album together and there was even a third one jade anderson john anderson's daughter from yes so suddenly it's a completely different model i'm no longer trying to persuade someone to join me and make a band on a record label i'm now a long form whore for hire so we're doing long form work we're making albums yeah and I've written three albums with these girls, or substantially written three albums with these girls. Jade Anderson, who then gets signed to Columbia for a million dollars personal. So she walks off with an actual million real dollars. Wow. You know, none of that 
a million dollar deal shit where it's all fucking you know going into making of a record you know this was a expensive mistake for columbia and we start making the record and the aim is to make it as a co-production with me and some illustrious american who's just come off the back of making lauren hill's record so i have this fascinating trip in 1999 summer 99 in may going around new york and all of uh, and new jersey and all of these you know kind of places where all of lauren hill's people are and meeting most of them and some of them are total gentlemen and some of them are just going to screw me at the first opportunity but mainly it's this fascinating thing you know walking into completely black only neighborhoods mm. and into houses that have been bought by people who briefly made money and then their mums have quietly moved into a basement or whatever you know? yeah. <laughs> just in Teaneck and Orange County and or Orange and beautiful hot strange places alien places and then had a bit of time in Philadelphia trying to find some other people working with uh, the Roots' crew in that studio. And then going over to L.A., where they were much more gentlemanly, actually, and didn't try and screw me nearly as badly. It couldn't have been a more interesting three weeks. Mm. How did that record do? Well, then 9-11 happened. So by this point, I've gone digital. Um, I've left my, I've dumped my tape machine, and I'm now running on an early digital cheapo Pro Tools rig, and everything sounds like shit. And then I got nicer converters, which suddenly everything sounds great. <laughs> but and then 9-11 happens. Was it 2001? Yeah. So it took a long time to get that record together. Mm. So 2000 and 2001 then. And I get a huge publishing deal on the back of this record from Mike McCormack at Universal because everyone thinks that that record's going to be huge. I mean, it really looks like it's going to be huge. Everyone's going into bat for it. So I got 200,000 quid personal advance, which is a factor of three times bigger than anything I've walked off with before. And suddenly, one of these records had better do well. Anyway, 9-11 happens, and her record was really a kind of pop soul record. and was, It was kind of sweet, but it was about latency, you know, that period where you leave childhood, but you're not quite a sexually functional human yet, you know, and it's about the muddle between family and lovers and betrayals. But it's really a platonic record. It's not a kind of sexual record. And 9-11 happens and it's like overnight that whole cultural era of confusion before you become confident in the world is removed from the collective conversation. Mm. So that's obviously an academic way of putting it. Basically, the world grew up and it grew hard overnight. And her record was instantly made irrelevant. Yeah. And Eminem was instantly made completely central and Eminem followers and that whole thing and it was irrelevant and Columbia released it and it was plainly going straight in the bin I don't even know if the album got released certainly singles came out mm. and you know with Columbia's dirty shenanigans got into the top 30 for about 10 seconds and then flew straight out again <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So how did you meet those those three artists in particular? How did they, those relationships come about? I'd had a long... By that point, from about 96, I'd had a manager called Lizzie Francis. So Lizzie worked at 19 which was Simon Fuller's huge industrial company mm. having massive hits everywhere. And she'd worked at Warner's before and had done marketing there. And I'd liked her there and we'd liked each other there. And she'd, you know, we'd kind of go in and raid the CD collections together kind of thing. Um, and we were Joni Mitchell fans together. So, you know, fighting a kind of desperate, culturally inappropriate corner. And then she left 19 and came to me and I wasn't being represented at that point said look I, I want to manage and I'd like to manage you I think you're going to be all right so she took me on and then her job was keeping her ear to the ground and finding interesting people to work with so she was lightly managing me for the end of my period when I still signed as a singer to, Univ to, to Warner Records and slowly over time this work model whereby I'd do a whole album with someone failed you know those three albums all came out and they all stiffed I mean, Emiliana's was not culturally dead. At least it was something. But Jade's probably didn't even come out. Nicole's came out, went straight in the bargain bin on Telstar. And suddenly that £200,000 investment Mike's made into me looks like a very expensive mistake on his part. So I'm a year into that deal. And then I'm two years into that deal. And almost nothing's coming out. And I made a record with Javine. So Lizzie basically is now my ear on the ground. So she's scouting... TV talent shows, all of her connections yeah. in the industry, and she's out there looking for people who are good because and who are interesting. Because this is around the time that Popeye, this is the beginning the of The very beginning. And Popeye Right at the beginning. Then, yeah. So this is now probably 2000, 2001, 2002 is what I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. So she was managing Jade. So she found Jade, God knows how, but she was managing Jade. Um, so in a way, you could argue that I was a double dip. But she's managing me as a songwriter and producer and Jade and various other people too. We're now two years into this deal and the model is not working. Nothing's coming out. I'm now whoring wildly. I'm no longer doing a whole album with people. I'm like, I'm doing two days with people, three days. I'm really enjoying it. Much yeah. quicker work. Yeah, I've gone digital. You no longer have to play in time. Still an analog digital hybrid, mainly real synths and drums and guitars and things and i've made a lot of javine's record and i'm just doing bits of stuff you know but not much of it's coming out and this is a very expensive deal and it's looking expensive and humiliating and then 
I did a bit of writing with Will one day or something. We had a nice song. I think it even went on his album. I'm not sure. This is Will Young. Yeah. Yeah. So he's had his first album come out now and it's done well. But now it's second album time. Anyway, in one week. So this is now Christmas 2003. And I'm certainly looking at 17 years of unalloyed failure. (laughs) I've been a professional musician since 1984. It's now Christmas 2003. And yeah, I've made a living. But you know, what is that? That's nearly 19 years. That's 19 years of never getting higher than 76 in the charts or 57 in the charts or whatever. But what is it then that made people still want to work with you? I think they liked what I did. Right. I think that's what it was. I think that the A&R people, they liked the music. Yeah, they'd put it on and they wouldn't go, oh, Christ, here's an egg tune. They'd go, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing this. They were kind of rooting for you. Yeah, like, they were rooting for me. successful yeah. and these aren't successful not because the track's not good. There's other reasons these aren't happening. I guess so. Mm. Yeah, definitely. In fact, I don't even guess so. I know that's the case, which, of course, sounds flattering to myself, but... But I know that people liked what I did, even though it sucked commercially every single time. And then the Will Young song came along, and that was a lucky drop. That was meant to go to Ronan Keating. Basically, this is Leave Right Now. This is Leave Right Now. It's a couple of years old by this point, the song. I've been asked finally by 19 to write something for them, to write a Christmas song for Gareth Gates. And I spent four days trying to do it, and I get one line, and it wasn't a good line. And then in desperation on the Friday, I skid off axis and i do something different i don't really remember writing leave right now but it was written in four hours it lent heavily on various songs from the past a song that was that i'd done myself called weird friendless kid had used a chord progression that a friend of mine louis elliott had evolved where he got it from i don't know but it's a common baroque chord sequence but it's not common in pop Mm. um i mean there are a couple of queen songs that use it but only passing through and he'd used it on a lovely song called Los Angelinos. And the first time I used it was on a song of mine called Weird Friendless Kid. And I'd used the same progression. And I cut him in for 10%. The song, of course, of course, wasn't a hit or anything or didn't even exist. And then I'd used it again with a Jade Anderson song called Nothing More. And then by the time I came around to writing Leave Right Now, I'd forgotten all about the fact it was Louis' chord sequence and used it anyway. And it was that was when it really sat well on the song. Mm. And the song was written really, really quickly. And I don't remember where the idea for the lyric came from, but it just did appear. And it was a nice lyric. And I remember the verse was kind of modelled on country songs. It was meant to be like, I Will Always Love You by, what's her face? Dolly Parton. Yeah. Yeah, that was what I was, I needed an up-tempo ballad, you know, or a ballad, a ballad, just a beautiful song. A Mariah Carey song, you know, whatever, yeah. that kind of thing. You know, I'm thinking up on the chorus and intimate on the verse, you know. <laughs> and it's a country song, for God's sake, you know. And it just went together really quickly and really well. And by the end of the day, it sounded great. So that's a song that you've you've completely, you've not written with someone. You've just written that yeah. song and, and it exists as a yeah. thing. How do you, I mean... At this how, point, does that, how do you then get it in for world? Yeah, how do you give that? So Lizzie, my manager at this point, is a banshee. So at this point, she's hungry and desperate. And when she gets an idea that this is the song for your artist, she will stand on the table and kick you in the face until you're listening to her and playing the fucking thing for a second time. You know, she has no shame. She'll send the same song to somebody four times in a row and they'll go, have I heard this before? It's great. And she'll go, nope. (laughs) Yeah, so this is what's going on. And she's at this point, she's just the greatest. And she remained great, but... 
that story, you know, you know, everything changes, you know, yeah. and she and she did brilliantly well and built up a huge empire and was, you know, was never quite as desperate or as wonderful much later on, you know, but we'll get to that all in the fullness. But she was why. Mm. So she was why that song did well. Yeah. yeah, you need lots of things, but without her, no way. So she then gives it to Mike McCormack and... The aim is to try and get it to someone. I remember we played it to another industry guy, Colin Barlow, who was looking after Ronan Keating. It was meant to go to him, but nothing happened. That was just all mouth and no trousers. And then somehow she then is hassling Mike McCormack, my publisher, to play it to his wife, Joe McCormack, who was the head of publishing at 19, to get it through to Will Young. She's got the feeling Will's going to smash this one. And this is the song. And Mike wants to play it to joe but she's going for fuck's sake mike it's eight in the morning we've got to get the kids to school just fuck off will you you know play me this look send it to me and he's going no i'm not i've got to actually make sure you hear it i've got to make sure you hear it twice you know getting pressure for this and in the end she kind of relents to hear it and he plays it to her a second time and then she goes okay i'll take it to simon and then the next thing that happens is almost simultaneously steve lipson gets taken on to make will young's record and he comes in and listens to all the songs that Mike is pitching to him. And Mike pitches him 12 songs. And the only one, Steve Lipson, and I also I obviously owe him massively for this too, but Steve comes out going, that's the one. Anyway, I found out later from various sources that Steve said, no, that's the one. That's the one I'll, I'll go into bat for. And then by one of those godly miracles, Simon Fuller gets hit by the same song from Simon, from Steve Lipson, and then about three days later from Joe McCormack. So because of a combination of nepotism and desperation, Simon Fuller, who is the person to who, for whom this all matters, you know, on whom it hinges, gets played it twice in a row. Mm. And once is never enough. It has to be twice. Ideally, with a day or two in between, it was perfect. Yeah. And apparently it was round a swimming pool somewhere in the south of France. He hears it the second time. And this could all, all be totally untrue. And he's apparently leaping up and down. That's it. You know, Eureka, this is it. This is it. We're through. I've got it. This is Will Young's ticket out of ignominy. And it was. And it really was. And then about five minutes later, somehow it gets switched across to Gareth Gates. <laughs> and Lizzie has to go back into overdrive desperately to switch it across and i don't know how she does it but somehow she pulls levers and threatens and controls and it gets switched back to will young and then will sings it and again all of this could be untrue or even defamation but apparently he sung it so badly that it was a jaw-droppingly this isn't going to work moment and this could be not true so then simon fuller allegedly threatens him and says will you have to do this this is your way out Again, I have to say these caveats because these are all stories I've heard and it could all be libel. Mm. And Will goes in and sings it and absolutely commits to it the second time. And then even later than that, this I know was true. Will comes over and we're doing a bit of writing on something else. And he goes, look, I have to play you. Leave right now. And he plays it to me. And I think it's a Saturday morning, which I never work weekends now, but back then maybe I did. Yeah. And he plays it to me. And it is awful. Yeah. But his vocal is good. But me and him sit down and I go, okay, what's going on is the orchestra has to have low end in it. It's all high end here. You've got to push. It's a steady push, this song. It's not about, you know, gnats flying off a windscreen. You know, you have to push. This is 
slow and 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 all the drums are really transient you know same thing it felt like everything was just gnats pinging off a windscreen instead of it being deep and solid and we called up steve lipson and he was like oh for fuck's sake i'm walking in the cotswolds i've been killing myself all week i'm with the dogs i'm out must you <laughs> i don't know steve terribly well at this point and we go you know what steve it'll be quick you know, it's this and 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 it's this, you know. And apart from that, it's great. He goes, okay, okay, I hear you. I think you're right. I'll tell Hef, we'll redo it. And then the next time I hear it, it's on the radio. And then I hear it and I think, Christ, it's got flowers all over it. It's pink and light blue. It's meant to be green. It's, oh God. So you didn't like that? I didn't like it the very first time I heard it. It was, you know, I had the Ray Charles singers who I love, but no, not on this, you know. And then the second time I heard it, I really thoroughly liked it. And then it wasn't meant to be a hit. So the record company didn't, they only shipped, I think, 20,000 copies. And even though it was in the run up to Christmas, you know, so anyway, basically, Javine's just had her first single out. And everyone's in, Javine's in all the going up lists and Will's in all the going down lists. And, and I think what really swung it was when Will went on Parkinson. He was so personable and so obviously warm and sincere and clever and decent and all the things that you love about England. Mm. And everyone bought it for five minutes and then the copies ran out. <laughs> about it Tuesday. It went to number one, though. It went, by, anyway, yeah. basically by Tuesday, all the fucking copies are gone because only 15 of them out there. Right. And they haven't got any mechanism for getting there. They got them all there Friday afternoon and it overtook the charity single at five to six or something, you know, like five minutes before the deadline, it just overtook it squeaking at number one. And then the second week, it was a clean win. At that point, having worked for 19 odd years without any success, how, how are you feeling? You've suddenly got a number one single. I felt like a little switch had gone up for no reason. Mm. You know, I had no idea what it'd be. I thought it was going to be Javine if I thought it was going to be anything. And this little quiet little switch, a bit like one of these in my visualization, a little rocker switch just went up. But again, for no particular reason. And it didn't stay up. Yeah, it went up and it went down and it went up and it went down. And for about five years, it went up and down between 2004 and about 2008. I don't know, I had 10 hits or something. Yeah. They all came in waves. Are the, are the dips down and the, the, the things that just don't work uh, or, or, or fail, are they a lot easier to accept when every now and then you're having a hit? The well, the weird thing was how quickly or... you get used to it. You know, so by about 2007, you know, I feel entirely entitled to this. Um, <laughs> you know, I had to speak twice at the Ivers because I won two Ivers. And the first time I went and spoke, I can't remember, basically just spoke about gratitude. Um, and about these, how it had happened. These were for... Um, for were winning for, Ivers, yeah. Yeah, they were for the Will, that Will Young the, single. That Will Young yeah. single won Best Song Musically and Lyrically. The other one was Diane Vickers, was it? No, no I didn't. It was, it, was, it was Best Song. It was Songwriter of the Year, about five years later. And by the time the second one came along, I'm not saying a kind of evil switch had flipped up in me, but slightly I am saying that. You know, somehow I'd forgotten... You know, it wasn't a totally shit speech, but it was pretty shit, really. You know, what I'd really wanted to speak about was about what I thought was a move away from songwriting towards production and how what the privilege of writing is catching it when the song is still raw. You know, that you record the singer 
we write the song in a day and I record the singer later on. And at that point, the singer is fighting for their life. You know, is this song any good or is it totally shit? And the two of us are there praying it'll be good. And that's what the communicative thing is. That's what the secret force of the good record is. But of course, little was I to know that at that point, my run was about to finish. <laughs> and in fact, the whole model would change. Yeah. You know, um, so that's a kind of in a way, almost like, bam, chapter 11. <laughs> of course, Egg's run of success didn't last forever because they never do. But he had finally written a hit single and more would follow. But there was one question I wanted to ask Egg more than anything. And that was, how much do you sell a song for? The answer he gave me was not one I was expecting because actually he doesn't sell songs at all. The back end is so enormous mm. if you've written a song. You know, as a producer, yeah, you make money, but it's, I'm not saying it's small change, you know, but it's, it's useful, but it's not enormous. But if you're a songwriter on a song, it's kind of enormous mm. and it doesn't really stop, especially if they're bloody balance. Mm. You know, so I haven't had a hit for years, but I'm still making a lot of money to my huge surprise. So you don't charge anything. Right. So if somebody comes in and I'm writing a song with them, it's a day of their time and a day of mine. You know, this equipment here in the studio is all very old, so it's all appreciating nicely and it's all been tax written off, so it's all effectively free. My electricity costs are negligible. This studio is under my house. So I'm carrying no costs at all. So it's a day of their time and a day of mine, and that's it. Yeah. And then if somebody wants it to be a record, then we go, okay, how much will you pay for production? And the answer will be somewhere between two and 10,000 quid. Or occasionally these days, if they say nothing, then, then it'll be a joint venture. I'll get a much higher share of the money. Sure. Um, and that's it. So thankfully, the awkward question of charging people for a track is not a, not a question. Not a question. No. How do people decide who has contributed to the song? And how much of it, how much is their percentage of the song? Do you, do you write, tend to write with one other person? No. At times, sometimes you're... Usually, but usually, but occasionally I write on my own. Very occasionally. Right. And then I'll write with as many people as, as come it. in, come in. And is there a moment where somebody has come up with a line and they have to... They, they're in a position where they have to say, don't forget that I wrote that line and I, I, I contributed. No, I mean, it was like that in Brother Beyond where we, you know, we went through every single song forensically and went, okay, that's the 75, 25 or whatever. Mm. And then with me and Alice, we sort of moved slightly closer. If we'd co-written, it was 50-50. And if I'd written it, it was 70-30. Mm. And then after that, the rule is really simple, which is if three people are in a room for a day, then it goes three ways, even if one of them's just sitting there silent. Sure. Um, that's just how it goes. And... That's fine. And once have I cut somebody down for being in a room and effectively not giving anything. And I still feel a little guilty about it. But that's it. Yeah. I didn't cut her wildly down, 65, 35. Okay. But under every other circumstance, no. It, yeah. You know, if there are five of us in a room, it's five ways. Mm. And if somebody goes back and tries to kind of change that subsequently, then you think they're a fucking ass and you don't work with them again. Sure. Yeah. Unless they're right. <laughs> <laughs> in which case, you know, if somebody comes in with a chorus first and it's a great chorus, I go, okay, well, I'll cut myself down. You know, the very first thing I'll say is, I recognize you came in with this chorus. It's really good. So we'll talk about it at the end, but I'm not expecting 50% on this. Sure. Um, but if I come with a chorus in advance, I, it'll be 50-50. I won't cut them down. Sure. So it's a case of they come in for a day, you give up a day, you make a song. And then you see what that song does. Yeah, you but don't forget, it. that's the end of my investment. Mm. Their investment goes until they bloody die. Mm. You know, this is not 
a clean deal for them. I remember years ago, Paloma Faith, there was a song written for a film and the film company wanted Paloma to sing it. And I called up Paloma and she goes, okay, Egg, I don't like the song. It sounds like a fucking James Blunt song. And what I know is it could be a hit, in which case I'll have to play it at all of my live sets until I die and I won't be getting a penny for it and I won't enjoy it because I don't like it. That would make it a no from me. <laughs> and yeah. it was like, too right. Yeah. Paloma, I'm with you. I get that. Great. I will not call you again about this song. I will never darken your door with respect to this particular song. You are 100% right. And that is final. <laughs> Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know, as the writer, you... That's it. I yeah, get paid for doing off. nothing. It's It feels to me like a distortion of the fabric of space-time. You know, and I obviously shouldn't be arguing for changes in copyright law, but it is a violation of the basic principle, which is you and I, we do a piece of work, I pay you, we're quits. Mm. You know, this is, this is the kind of violation of banking proportions, really. Mm. And of course, everybody argues the other side, and I'm extremely grateful for all the money that I'm still receiving from these lucky things that happened. But it's not kind of fair. I can't remember what came next. I've written down just a few of Okay, the cool. What's on there? Yeah. This is just a few as well of people that you've have, have worked with. Florence and the Machine, yeah. Kylie Minogue, Paloma Faith, James Blunt, Duffy, Celine Dion, Plan B. Are these, these are all oh, Plan B was so swift. That, that was, was one afternoon or oh. one day. Okay. He still counts. He still counts. Oh, Keep you. him on there. And Adele, I suppose, which was Chasing Pavements. Was, yeah, was but quite a lot on the first record. Three yeah. songs on that record. So you mentioned that after the, Will, the success with Will Young, it kind of, it went down again. You yeah, went it went down. There was nothing for a year, perhaps. And then there were the two Will, Will, sorry, Jim Morrison hits. And then it went really quiet for a year or so. And then I remember being at the 19 party and seeing someone go, and I just had Adele in. And we'd done a song called Tired, and I'd nearly lost it. Mm. Like, it was a great verse. Everything is all latent, it's all possible, but every time I change the key, of course, it just sucked. And it's about 11.30 in the morning, the second day we'd be not at it for an hour, and she goes, you know what, maybe this, maybe we've got to give up on this one. I was like, no, no, and just spazzed out and attacked every synth for 20 minutes, and suddenly it was great, and she just totally smashed it and knew what she was doing, and it just fell into place. But I think I nearly lost her there. And then she came back, and the next time she came back, three weeks later or whenever we wrote Chasing Pavements and she was just really clear I want to write a ballad you write ballads let's write a Pacey ballad and we started by listening to that song by the Goo Goo Dolls Iris yeah anyway it had no bore no relationship to that at all in the end but that was what she was kind of looking for and then I played some really terrible chords which were really boring and then she had this melody for the verse of Chasing Pavements that was so great and it was so the best possible thing you could have done with those crappy chords. Mm. And it was just, oh, my God, this woman can turn water into wine. Yeah. Christ. Okay. And suddenly I'm tremendously excited. And the song was written very, very quickly after that. Felt nice. You know, like the two of us just running without being too scared, really. Mm. And it was very quickly written. Probably all over by four o'clock or something in the afternoon. I wish it happened like that often, but I mean, she's remarkable. You know, it was immediately clear that she was just super clever. This is a really intelligent person who's really in command of her shit. Yeah, yeah, sure. One thing I was told about your work ethic is that you have quite a regimented day. <laughs> I'm married. I have children. <laughs> Come 6th 
it's come seven really these days. I'm pushing it a bit and keep pushing it in a stupid way. I was but, yeah. told two numbers which are quite specific, which was you work from ten fifteen till six thirty. Is that does that is that right? It's not quite as bad not as quite that. that right. No, okay. it isn't. I mean, basically, I've got the dogs walk by about nine fifteen or nine thirty. I come down and then there's always admin printing stems, getting a, something ready, or yeah, I do the replying to emails on the dog walk, and I listen to stuff on the dog walk. But yeah, I'm down here probably working by nine thirty, and then people come in at eleven, but sometimes ten, and then it's meant to be hand of death at six thirty. But these days I just keep cocking up and it's quietly moved to 6.45 as a default. But I mean, yesterday I came up at 10 past seven and that was really taking the mickey. If I have a visiting American or someone who's really come a long way, then I can get a stay of execution sure. probably till 10 or 11 o'clock or when we all run out of puff. But I'm not going to go beyond midnight. I just is run that, out of life. Is that quite typical of songwriting sessions to be a full day? Yeah. Because it feels... You're properly burnt out by eight o'clock. Yeah. From what you've said, it sounds like a lot of the magic moments that happen and you get it done. It is. At the if end you're of running, the day. it's quite a physical. No, not necessarily. It's a very physical process. Ideally, you, you put a foot down at 11 o'clock. You go, I got this theory and you play it and everyone goes, oh, it's just so super great. <laughs> and that's it. Bam. You just kind of fill in the I's and the T's and you work outwards from it and you go, oh, what happens here? And, you know, and by three o'clock in the afternoon, you go, you know, I kind of like it. You know, and you recorded at two or three in the afternoon and hopefully by seven o'clock, that's it. We're done. That's a badly made demo. Mm. And that'll do. If it goes to two days, probably the song's a bit worse or else it's really good and you just want to look after it. But if it slows down, it can really go wrong. You know, if you kind of it's four in the afternoon, you've eaten two, two sandwiches instead of one at lunch and you both get hit by something, you know, and you're still on the second first lyric or something, you know, bam, you can wake up, it's an hour and a half later and you haven't even started recording it and your energy's gone to pieces. Mm. It's kind of physical. You know, producing isn't like that. Producing is just, just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Is it better? Is it worse? That's the only question. It's like a binary question. Did it just get better or worse? Mm. But songwriting isn't like that. Songwriting is, no, come on, we've got to say something. That's, we've been cowardly here. Do you have kind of a rule that by the end of the day you have to have something? No. Out? It's just like there are days where you just go, that's just a day that... Yeah, and they're really painful. Didn't happen. Yeah, yeah sometimes with often? really good people. No, not often. Um, yeah, I know, four times a year. Okay. You come up empty-handed. Mm. Go, oh, Christ, I'm really sorry. But interesting, but I mean, for instance, I had two days a couple of weeks ago with a very successful LA-based New York writer. That obviously sounds stupid. But he's a New York guy based in LA now because New York's dead now. Yeah. Uh, it might come back from the dead it probably will in fact it has to and it will there's no it might my money's on new york owning stuff in five years in la not becoming redundant but becoming decadent um but anyway you know he was he was a pop writer and he was like no it has to have a clever twist and is this lyric really twisty enough is this clever enough and two days we kind of got nothing you know one song's quite good and the other one we get to the end we record it in and it's just somehow got no truthfulness in it. And that really hit me very hard. You know, and I got two questions. One of them is, are my standards too low? You know, am I letting stuff through the gate just for an easy score? And the answer is yes. Then the next thing that happened was I had Justine from the vaccines. And kind of the first thing he says when he came in, so it was me, him and Brad from the vamps. And the first thing Justin says is, let's have a mutual non-aggression pact. You know, he doesn't really say that, but he's basically saying, if it's even good enough, let's run with it. Let's not kill this too. Let's, I've come to a conclusion killing stuff young and being super punitive really doesn't work. Let's, let's back each other up. 
and we had the best fucking day. It was such fun, and the song's great, and it was written cleanly and recorded really well by 6.30, and Brad sung the shit out of it and wrote the shit out of it, and it was just so easy and such a pleasure. You know, it was such a different attitude, and the question is, what works? And the answer is, neither or both. Depends on the people. Depends on whether you have a good idea going in or a lucky idea. Depends on if you nicked something good or not. It's really fun, this thing of whose graves haven't been robbed recently and also what can you steal and what can't you steal because the idea that we're sitting here doing clean work from scratch is just a total lie and don't anyone dignify that by repeating it of course there's originality but it's by mistake and it's in the cracks and it's in the details and almost everything the dna's been worked out and mapped out and this is how it goes do you ever worry that you just come up with your last great idea or it doesn't really matter if i have I've made money, I've reproduced. Yeah. <laughs> What's yeah. there left to do? But there's, there's kind of, I guess the preconception about songwriters is that you can write one incredibly huge song and retire on that huge song. Less so than before, thank God. Yeah, I was going to say, how true is that? Yeah, well, it was really true. You know, if you look at the 80s, you know, I mean, there was one point where I did this little thumbnail calculation. But if you compare 1984, which was peak money, and let's say now, Houses cost a tenth in 1984. Maybe they cost a twentieth what they cost now. And you were selling twice as many records at that point. This was at the death of CDs. So at that point, they were still popping at £6.50 each as opposed to 14 quid. So when I last did the thumbnail calculation, it was twice as many records at twice the price in an era when property cost a twentieth as much. That's 80 to 1 in terms of producing. That was producing income and to a lesser extent songwriting income. It's probably even worse now. So, you know, I mean, my God, you, you got a song on a Michael Jackson record. That's it. You really don't have to breathe again. So the great news now is, you know, you can have a hit and you're fine for three years or five years. If it's an up-tempo hit, it kind of disappears. That's why I can't bear to look and see where my money is coming from. <laughs> because you know, feel, I feel like that little act of whatever voodoo would render me vulnerable to have suddenly my whole royalty stream falling to pieces I haven't heard my things on the radio in decades and yet the money is coming in probably half or a third what it was at the total peak and I don't get it um, so I haven't got an answer for that and I shouldn't say it in any way or even acknowledge it anything but privately but yeah. what you really need to do is write a great song not with a great singer but with someone who knows what they are and who they are and for whom the meaning in that song is as much their meaning or more their meaning than yours as a songwriter. So if you write a song too much yourself and I come out and I go, that was great and I wrote nearly all of it, I've almost certainly just fucked myself over. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do because sometimes it's the right thing to do, but very few people take outside songs. Celine's about the only person who'll take outside songs. Some people do, but usually when they're over a barrel, desperate, and record company's going, we've paid a huge amount for you and we need you to have a bloody hit. Now you will do this song or else we electrocute you now. Yeah. That's not really a loving way to do business. I mean, the great news is this year, it turns out I'll have had 20 or so songs out and some of them really good, but I'm not sure any of them are going to be hits. But you know, I didn't think any of the songs that were... Yes, I thought Chasing Pavements was a hit, actually. I thought that had a good chance. But that's the only one where I thought it had any chance at all. Maybe I thought Give Me Something could be a hit if it had a clean crack. So those two. I didn't think Once was going to be a hit. I certainly didn't think Warwick Avenue was going to be a hit. I didn't think Leave Right Now was going to be a hit. One thing I've been asking everyone in this kind of series is kind of what were the bumps in the road or the low points that you learned something from. But for you, I guess, 
there were so many at the beginning <laughs> and at the end too so yeah, the last few years have been kind of interesting they've been good but you know kind of i remember after i hadn't had a hit for about two years speaking to paul and her going you know that might, might, might be it going no fucking way no way can't keep me out of there but it might be it you know and now my kind of feeling is no enjoy the margins you know do the best work i can working with people whose work i like and and a lot of it's coming out but i think a lot of it's a long way from the mainstream mm. you know i don't even know what the mainstream is now with spotify so i i, I really don't have a battle plan i'm a long way from people who carefully target their records and the good news is it means I can continue to work and I don't burn out. I also take really long holidays because of the kids. Do you worry less or more now than you did at that point? Far less. Yeah. Because I had a crack at it once. You know, it was a bit where for a while I was, you know, top of the tree and it was really fun. <laughs> really silly. <laughs> and and now I kind of got, also got this nice position, you know, because I've never made a truly awful record. Or I have, but, you know, they all died and completely disappeared that I kind of got a nice reputation and so I go places and people are disproportionately respectful given how badly I've been doing. Um, it's, you know, what's not to like? Music Made Me Do It is produced by Dream Team and Loud and Quiet and edited by Emma Snook. For more information, please visit loudandquiet.com and subscribe on your favourite podcast app to receive all future episodes. 